Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Welcome back to Family Stories, where it's time for another depth charge dive into our listeners' wartime histories. This is the show where you, the listeners, supply the script. We're kicking off this week with a story from Alexander Castorine about the other Operation Mincemeat. Yes, that's right, long before that Operation Mincemeat was dreamed up, there was an earlier mincemeat which also featured an outrageous act of deception. star of the first mincemeat was a ship called HMS Manxman and its captain, Alexander's grandfather, Robert Kirk Dixon, known as Bertie. I'll let Alexander take up the story. After two hazardous convoys running troops and materials from Gibraltar to Malta, the ship had returned to Scotland where Admiral Somerville revealed its next mission. The Manxman was to disguise itself as the French super destroyer Leopard and lay a minefield off the west coast of Italy. My grandfather later said he never knew whether Somerville meant the codename mincemeat to indicate the condition of Italian shipping after the operation, or the state of his ship if this gamble didn't come off. There were several problematic differences between the Manxman and the French ship. The Leopard had three funnels, but, unlike the Manxman's, they were unevenly spaced. She had a different stern shape, and... Worst of all, instead of being flush-decked like the Manxman, she had a break in the forecastle. Rear Admiral Robert Burnett and Captain Cowie joined Bertie to help convert the Manxman. A false bow and stern were rigged up, and paint altered the lines of the ship to make it look like she had a break in the forecastle instead of a flush deck. One hundred French Navy uniforms completed the disguise, plus a trickler jacket and a cockade for the ship's cat. With the help of 120 men, The ship's disguise was finished in 19 hours. The next day, the Admiral inspected the Manxman, addressing my grandfather as Ah, mon capitaine. He replied, Ah, cher Amiral. The Admiral notified the Admiralty of the completion of the task and closed with Vive la France. The Manxman departed the Carle of Localche the next day for Milford Haven to pick up the mines, 
She sailed on to Gibraltar, refuelled and left at dawn on the 22nd of August 1941. She hoisted the French ensign and headed for Italy. At one point, the ship sighted a flying boat six miles away, but it showed no interest. After sunset, speed was increased to 30 knots, and she headed for the Italian coast off Livorno. Once there, the crew began to lay 140 mines. Two hours later, the mines were laid, and the ship cleared the Gulf of Genoa before sunrise. During Manxman's dash across the Mediterranean, Admiral Somerville's Force H had created a diversion. Ten swordfish from the Ark Royal attacked a factory in Sardinia and set fire to a corkwood near Tempo. Force H cruised along the Spanish coast with the Ark Royal's aircraft overhead to attract attention. By then, Manxman was out of dangerous waters. Arriving back in Kyle of Lochalsh, my grandfather wrote in his diary, and so ended our awfully big adventure. Our next story is from We Have Ways listener Tom. Hello, I found your podcast recently and I'm starting to work my way through them. They're really enjoyable and informative. Thank you. My grandfather served in World War II as a logistics driver and while he didn't have any big battle moments, I do have a couple of tales that give an insight into how people got by during such a torrid time. In logistics, it seems to have been accepted that items would go missing and what the army didn't catch you with wouldn't hurt them. On a brief spell of leave my granddad managed to liberate a case of tinned peaches and return them home to his family. A very rare treat at the time. He made them promise to keep them until his return so they could all celebrate the war's end together. I'll return to the peaches later. Grandad spent a lot of time in North Africa and Italy and right at the end of the war he found himself in Greece. I wanted to know more so I got his war records, which made it abundantly clear that Grandad was still in the market for passing on questionable goods. The last entry in his service record is a charge for attempted theft for sale on the black market of 250,000 cigarettes and 10,000 boxes of matches. His court-martial hearing found him guilty, and he duly served six months in a military glasshouse in Greece, returning home not long after the completion of his sentence. He was a good man and was clearly just trying to make an extra bob or two in a very hard time, but I did find this somewhat amusing. I also made a point of not mentioning this information to my nan, as I suspect he had neglected to tell her about it. Still, he had his peaches to look forward to. The big day came. His discharge certificate stated he was a good soldier and will do well in any civilian walk of life. He got home to the family back up north. The celebrations commenced and they remembered the case of peaches under the stairs. He went to grab them, but the case felt distinctly light and didn't smell great. Upon closer inspection, every single can had a hole pierced in the bottom, and all of the juice had vanished, leaving the rotting husks of what used to be peaches. After some stern questioning, it came to light that his younger brother, in a truly Adam and Eve moment, simply could not resist the temptation of the forbidden fruit stashed under the stairs. He had pierced the cans to drink the sweet juice, thinking he would not be caught. Needless to say, the family were most displeased. I was a little startled to find my granddad had been involved in such things, but although not necessarily morally correct, it is at least understandable given the nature of what they were doing and how hard it must have been. These tales of my family's past 
always raise a smile with me when I remember them. And I hope they will do with you too. Tom. Alan, Jemai Keller from Leesburg, Virginia, is up next. He says, I love the pod and Jim's books, which ensures my email will be read. Ha ha. I've been listening since episode one and enlisted in the independent company the day it came out. A sincere thanks for your hard work from this side of the pond. My great uncle Henry was a top gunner, engineer on the greatest plane that's ever flown, the B-17 bomber. Uncle Henry was very glad he ended up in a B-17 as opposed to a B-24, because of the remarkable amount of damage a B-17 could endure and still get the crew safely back to base, or at least to the ground. More on that in a minute. He flew with the 100th Bomb Group, a.k.a. the Bloody 100th, out of Thorpe Abbott's airfield. Thankfully for him and the family, he didn't fly his first mission until 1944, an October attack on Hanover. Things were safer by then, but by no means uneventful. He told stories about Thorpe Abbotts, and I clearly remember him busting one myth. Allied propaganda held that when the curtain went up and the target for the day's mission was revealed as Berlin, a great cheer went up among the air crews. Not so. Uncle Henry said when Berlin was revealed as the target, you could hear a pin drop in the briefing room. The assembled airmen knew it would be a long and difficult day. He flew 33 missions in the Lucky Lassie, including twice to Berlin, but most memorable was the 1945 attack on Chemnitz. After bombing the rail marshalling yard at Chemnitz, the Lucky Lassie sustained a flak hit to her number three engine. Unable to feather the prop, she wasn't going to make it back to Thorpe Abbotts. They decided to make an emergency landing in France, but Allied-occupied France was still a good distance away. The pilot and co-pilot spent precious minutes arguing about how much to toss overboard to lighten the load and get her to France. Finally, they ejected enough weight and set her down near Reims, blowing a tyre on touchdown. This wasn't long after the Battle of the Bulge, and although it was technically Allied territory, there were German units scattered throughout the area. It was a nervous army aircrew that walked to the station and took the train from Reims to Paris. From the City of Lights, they were able to hop on a C-47 to London, and then it was another train back up to Thorpe Abbotts. They arrived at their barracks 11 days after the mission, to find their belongings packed up and ready to be shipped to the States. No one had known the whereabouts of the crew until they walked back onto the base. Very much alive, they were back in the air and bombing Munster two days later. Uncle Henry lived many hours away from me, and I only had the chance to speak with him a few times before he passed. It's not an exaggeration to say that these conversations changed my life and helped drive me to where I am today. I wish I'd had more time with him. Alan Chiamai Keller This family story is from Ashley Lewis, who writes, Hi, James and Al. I understand that if I say, I love the podcast, it's the only thing that's kept me sane these past few months, you are legally obliged to read out my grandfather's story. Is that right? Well, I've got to say, it certainly helps. My grandmother, Ingelore, left Berlin at 14, after her family received a tip-off about the family's impending arrest by the Gestapo. She arrived in London with her grandparents in 1938. She didn't speak a word of English and left behind a charmed life of upper-middle-class comfort. By 1941, Ingelore and her grandparents were finally classified as Category C refugees, able to go about their daily business without restriction. 
1942, she enlisted in the RAF and trained as an engine fitter on Spitfires. She was immediately nicknamed Jerry, so she changed her name to sound less German, becoming Geraldine. As a nipper, I never tired of my grandmother's war stories, even if some were heavily sanitised for my young ears. Many members of the extended family disappeared into the Nacton Nabel, but that was only ever alluded to and never spelt out. She told me of her first experience of a German bombing raid on the airfield where she was stationed in the northeast. People were running to find shelter while bombs were falling, and in the chaos an officer shouted at her to move a fuel truck out of harm's way. She shouted back, I can't drive! To which he replied, Well, you bloody well can now! After people had seen her driving, it was assumed she could do it, so she never took a test, which explains many terrifying experiences I had in cars with her. The day after that air raid, at five minutes to three in the afternoon, she downed her tools and told her colleagues they should pack up and make their way to a shelter. When she was asked what on earth she was talking about, she explained that the previous day's raid was at 3pm, and the attackers were German, so naturally they would be on time. She was right, and the Germans bombed the airfield again, exactly at 3pm. As a German, she did face antagonism, and on one occasion had to defend a malicious allegation at courts martial for improperly maintaining an aircraft, which led to a crash. She said she was meticulous of her work, and kept meticulous records which she could demonstrate to the court. The outcome was the accuser was punished for the very allegation made against my grandmother. On VE Day, a Lancaster pilot said he would take her on a flying tour over Berlin to see if she could find her family home. She said a day or two later, she and several other tourists made the long flight to Berlin in a cold and noisy Lancaster, and while the devastation of Berlin was unimaginable, she did see her family home intact. The home was returned to her, after reunification in the 1990s. She finished the war as a skilled mechanic, a sergeant, and had already married and divorced a Spitfire pilot and met my granddad. Later she became a model, which led to a career in photography. We've also got some wonderful photos of her, which we will share on Twitter. Next up, Mark Talbot writes, Dear We Have Ways team, loving the podcast as it approaches 300 episodes. I've been with you since day one and joined the independent company on its inception. It's been a great boost to be part of a community with a common interest, which is clear to see on the live stream. I've been fortunate enough to get a few likes on various platforms and discover new history characters, such as Guy Walters and PCA, along the way. My wife rolls her eyes every time James pops up on TV or I tell her of his new books. My interest in the Second World War stems directly from my paternal grandfather, Harold William Frederick Talbot, who was born in 1916 in the Fenland village of Wilburton, Cambridgeshire. He left school in his early teens and became an apprentice watch and clockmaker in Cambridge. He learned his trade under two men who had both served and survived the Great War, one of whom continued to suffer the effects of gas. During the 30s, they would say to him, Well, boy, there's a war coming. What are you going to do? Their advice was not to volunteer for the army, certainly not the infantry, after their own experience of the wet and mud. When war broke out, Grandad went to the recruiting tents on the Market Square in Cambridge to volunteer for the fleet air arm. They hadn't turned up yet, so he ended up volunteering for the RAF, who asked him what he wanted to do. Like many young men, he wanted to fly, but on disclosure of his civvy work, they said there was a shortage of such trades and they badly needed instrument bashers for aircraft, as he put it. So, that's what he became, 
He always joked that on his medical, he was too nervous to provide a urine sample, so another bloke gave him some of his. He got in on another man's pee. Training followed at Cranwell and Uxbridge, as well as trade training at the Northampton Polytechnic in London. On completion, Grandad was posted to North Africa and served with squadrons on the desert in Sudan, Egypt and what is now Iraq. His trade meant he was moved around a lot and served with many empire nationalities. Later, he even posted to American squadrons when they joined the war. He was always impressed with the American work ethic and how quickly they laid down a desert airfield, plus how much food was on offer in the mess with huge vats of cornflakes where seconds were allowed. He was a lance and full corporal in North Africa, finally returning to the UK in 1943, where he was posted to Bryce Norton and promoted to sergeant, working on sections with responsibility for gliders and tugs. This is where he met my nan, a waff, on his section. She was seven years younger and her first encounter with him came as he gave someone a rather colourful dressing down. She pointed out that ladies were present and didn't need to hear such foul language. In fairness to Grandad, he didn't know she was there. One of his jobs was to brief the glider and tug pilots on how to fly and tow, safely using an instrument that dictated the correct angle to keep both glider and aircraft stable. He always said he couldn't believe he was asked to brief pilots, many of whom were ex-public school and officers. I think he found this difficult. I know he was frustrated that his elementary education held him back due to class and a lack of social mobility. Nan and Grandad married after D-Mob in 1946 and returned to live in Wilburton. They both worked in the jewellers and clockmakers on the Market Square in Cambridge until their retirement in the early 80s, raising two sons, my dad and his older brother. The war shaped my granddad's life. He always said he had a good war, but he did see some terrible things and have several near misses. He always told me about the war and formed my interest and respect for the men and women of his generation. Grandad died aged 98 in February 2015. Not a day goes by when I don't think of him and Nan and all the times I spent with them growing up learning about the events that so shaped their lives. He would have loved the podcast, even though the technology would have troubled him. In his mind, valves were never replaced by microchips and the internet was a mystery. Yours sincerely and very much with the wistful melancholy James spoke of this week. Mark Talbot Ted King from Lake Charlotte, Nova Scotia, has sent in the last of our family stories this week. This one's not suitable for young ears. He writes, Thank you, gentlemen, for a fantastic podcast. I was led your way by Al's recent appearance on The Rest is History. I'm the son of a museum creator, a proud D-Day Dodger, who worked his way up through Sicily, Italy, Holland, and onwards with the Royal Canadian Artillery. I'm a veteran myself and absolutely love history, especially military history. You two have gazumped those other two, the rest of history geezers, and wooed me away. Well, I'm glad to hear that. What prompted me to write was your mentioning of the Fauschenjäger. Dad had a deep respect for Germans, especially the Fauschenjäger, who frequently were the bastards they were coming up against in Italy. He said they were magnificent soldiers, tough as nails, and they fought like tigers. He said one village they fought over with them was a real scrap. Every time they attacked, the Germans would immediately counterattack. Each time they went back and forth, the Germans were worn down in numbers until just two paras, Butch Custody and the Sundance Kid, came at them in response. They were able to disarm them and ask them, Do you two have a death wish? The Germans replied, We are under orders to counterattack any Allied attack. 
and we're all that's left. One day Dad's unit was at a short halt beside an Italian farm. The old grandma, in standard-issue black dress, came out of the farmhouse and went into the outside toilet. Shortly after, some eagle-eyed German soldiers noticed the enemy and started sending fire across the field. As soon as the shells started in, the door to the shitter flew open and Granny ran like Usain Bolt while also trying to pull up her britches. This had Dad and the guys laughing so hard they couldn't really get to cover themselves. Apparently, Jerry was also busting a gut as the shell fire ceased long enough for the lads to scramble in their trucks and beat it. Another of Dad's stories also revolves around an Italian farm, the farmer and his pigs. While the British army may have had bully beef coming out of their ears, it was spam and Brussels sprouts in Dad's case. The spam came in long tubes, which was called horsecock, and despite the cooks trying many different ways to make it appealing, the guys were sick to death of it. There was a farm in their general vicinity that had some pigs. Understandably, the farmer wasn't willing to share and watched over his animals like a hawk against thieving Canadians. The Canadians made several attempts to get one, but were beaten back by old MacDonald each time. Watching, undaunted by this, was a nearby unit of Greeks. One afternoon, the Greeks were seen to be marching down the road with an apparent German saboteur and firing party. They went around the corner Some commands were heard, followed by a volley of shots. Presently, they came back around the corner with a stretcher bearing a blanket-covered body and proceeded back towards their encampment. The farmer respectfully lowered his head and took off his cap as the deceased was passing by. Dad noticed something familiar about one of the stretcher-bearers in uniform and realised it was the recently condemned man. The sneaky buggers had got one over on the farmer. I listen to you both on any morning and afternoon commute. Please keep up the outstanding work. As I'm a retired sailor, I'll sign off with Jack speak. Action stations, action stations. Cheers, Ted King. That's it for today. If you've got a family story you'd like considered for the show, please email it to we have ways podcast at gmail.com making your subject title family stories so we don't miss it you can also leave your story on our members site under the family stories tab remember it's patreon.com slash we have ways thanks for listening see you all soon <laughs>